0: Uh, This is Black History Month, by the way. Before I even get announcements, I want to say this. Norm and I are um, every week uh, writing up a little essay, kind of a Woodland Hills perspective on reconciliation. We really believe this is central to what the kingdom is all about. It really is. And um, so on the website, you can uh, find that essay by Norm Blagman and Greg Boyd. All right, let's turn to the Bible. If you're visiting, what we do at Woodland Hills Church is nothing fancy. We just believe in worshiping God exuberantly and passionately and then preaching authentically out of Scripture. And we're just going through the Bible and we're up to the book of Luke for the last couple of years and now we're up to chapter 11 in the book of Luke. And we're talking about prayer. I want to entitle this message, Scorpions, Eggs, and Prayer. (laughs) Scorpions, Eggs, and Prayer. For reasons that will hopefully become clear as we move into this. This is our second week dealing with this passage, and this is part of a broader series that we're doing on prayer. It started with our four-week study of the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is at the beginning of Luke chapter 11, uh, several weeks ago. This is our second swipe at this passage. I'm reading from the TNIV version. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend. Lend me three loaves of bread. I got a friend who came over uh, from a journey and I've got nothing to give him. Suppose the one inside says, Don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed for crying out loud. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus says, Even though he may not get up and give you bread because you're supposed to be a friend, yet because of your shameless audacity, and the connotation there is persistence, you're not going home without your bread. he'll he'll get up and give you as much as you need just to get you off his back. Now, Jesus isn't saying that this is what God is like. He's saying this is what prayer is to be like. So I say to you, Jesus says, ask with this audacious persistence, and it will be given to you. Seek with this audacious persistence, and you will find. Knock with this audacious persistence, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And those who seek, find. And to those who knock, the door will eventually be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Of course not. If you then, even though you are evil, thanks, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven, who has not, not, not any shadow of evil, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God. Let's ask the the Father for the Holy Spirit right now. Father, send us your Holy Spirit. Send your Holy Spirit into this message and give it your authority. Uh, Send your Holy Spirit into our minds to open them up and to receive your word and into our hearts to receive your word. Send your Holy Spirit to build the kingdom in our lives. Send your Holy Spirit to empower us to think authentically and deeply about these issues that we would worship you with all of our mind. Send your Holy Spirit, God, to give us courage not to settle for simplistic answers when simplistic answers don't work. Build your kingdom in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we we, we read this passage last week. It was our first swipe at this passage. And my goal last week was just to lay a foundation. And the foundation is simply to emphasize how important prayer is. We entitled it, The Insane Importance of Prayer. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to that message. It's foundational. We saw that God, even though he's all-powerful, he could create a universe that he runs totally on his own. But because his goal was love, his goal was relationship, he rather created a universe where people and other free agents have genuine say-so in what comes to pass. He created a world where communication with him is at the center. Because relationships are all about communication. Communication that is reciprocally influential, where both parties influence one another. We have the power to influence God by talking to him. He created a universe where he genuinely relies on his people talking to him. That's what prayer is. He relies on his people talking to him to see at least some aspects of his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole point of that was to say that prayer really is important. Things genuinely hang upon whether or not the people of God will pray. We saw last week that prayer is nothing fancy. It's nothing religious. It's just talking to God. Simple, straightforward talking the way you talk to a friend. Jesus makes it a very ordinary activity. We saw last week that while we need to have regular times set apart to talk to God, prayer times, we also need to cultivate a, a life of prayer. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, to pray continually. Make it a habitual part of your life that whenever you come upon an event, whenever anything happens, you instinctively talk to God about it. Because that's our primary way of inviting the kingdom into that situation. And so when you hear an ambulance, you just say a brief, quick word of prayer for the person who needs that ambulance. Uh, When you see a fight breaking out in your neighborhood, as you do sometimes in my neighborhood, uh, you you say a quick prayer for peace in that uh, situation. Whatever's going on, whether you're watching the news or whatever you're doing, To be talking to God about that situation. And to be just randomly blessing people because that's one of our primary jobs. You just go shopping and you bless people. You take your dog out for a walk. You just bless houses as you're going by. And our our faith is to be that every single word we utter to God makes a difference. We don't always see that. Maybe we don't even usually see that. but But James 5 tells us that prayer is powerful and effective. It brings the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's the foundation. Now, We here at Woodland Hills Church believe on being very authentic, not getting caught up into religion, which tries to sugarcoat stuff, but being authentic and wrestling with tough issues. And so I'm going to raise today and raise next week some tough issues. I'm going to raise some tough questions. Like this one. If it's true, as I said last week, that there are more if-then statements associated with prayer than any other human activity in the Bible— If my people pray, then will they hear from heaven? If prayer really is that important and really is that powerful and effective, then why, honestly, does it seem that prayer so often is not answered? Wouldn't you think that people who pray a lot would be walking around with a lot more eggs than people who don't pray? Or at least a lot less scorpions. But honestly, as I look at the situation, I don't see a real clear correlation there. Why does it seem that many times when we ask for eggs, we don't get any eggs? In fact, sometimes it seems like we get scorpions. You pray for your marriage and it gets worse. Pray for protection and your kid breaks his legs or, or worse. Asking honest questions here. Why does it seem, honestly here, that there's no rhyme or reason to what gets answered and what doesn't? Why does it seem that the answer to prayer is so arbitrary? you got two kids who are fatally ill. We'll call them Susie and Johnny. You pray for both of them. You have faith for both of them. Susie gets healed miraculously. Praise God. Johnny dies. Why? Why? Looks like Susie got a nice egg. And Johnny and his parents got a scorpion. We've got to wrestle with this stuff. I'm going to tell you up front, a little warning here, that this message uh, and next week's message is fairly intensely theological. But we're not afraid of theology here at Woodland Hills, are we? No. We take it on. It's theological, but it's important theology. You're going to have to keep your thinking caps on. This is tough stuff. Um, But uh, it's important theology. It's important for at least two reasons. One is for ourselves, and the other one is for other people. It's important for ourselves because all of us, to some degree, and some of us, like me, to a large degree, find that we can't get our hearts passionately behind something that our head finds unintelligible, something that our head declares to be nonsense. To some degree, if we have incongruity in our ideas about prayer, things that don't make sense, it's going to to some degree and maybe to a large degree compromise the passion we have in getting behind prayer. We may still do it out of obedience if it doesn't make any sense, but but we're not going to do it as passionately as we otherwise would. Secondly, for other people, what are you going to say to Johnny's parents if you're the one they come to and they ask, Why did Susie get healed and Johnny died? How will you respond to them? Here's where theology cashes out. And I'll frankly admit that it's been my experience that Christians are at their worst with regard to situations like that. We mean the best, and sometimes we just indict people or wound people because we haven't thought through our theology. Here's a second warning. For folks who have been around Woodland Hills Church for a, a while, some of this will be review and it won't be that new to you. But if, you've, if you're fairly recent here to Woodland Hills Church, say within the last year or two, some of what I'm going to say may conflict with what you believe, with what you've been taught. And I would just ask you to keep an open mind. We're all in process, we're all learning, and, and so even though it may be new and, and uh, maybe co- contradicts some stuff that you've been taught, maybe it th- contradicts stuff that is really dear to you, but try to keep an open mind. Now, I know that is hard. That is hard for all of us. They prove, Last year, there was a study that proved neurologically that we're hardwired to be narrow-minded, <laughs> When we hear facts that contradict beliefs that we hold dear, our neocortex begins to shut down. That's where we do all of our reasoning, uh, reasoning processing. And our amygdala starts to heat up. That's the, it sends out all the chemical cocktails that tell us either to fight or flight. So when we confront stuff that contradicts beliefs that are dear to us, we start to get mad, and we're not thinking very well. And I'm just trying to ask you to simadana, Just uh, stay cool, stay cool and hear it out. Always ask this all-important question, and this is a question to always have on. Don't take stuff from human authority. Always be asking the question, is this biblical? Is this biblical? You might find that there's some things to learn if you can keep your neocortex operating with that criteria. Also, I want to say that this message and next week's message hang very much together. It's, it's like one sermon. Next week, we'll fill in some of the details of what I'm going to be talking about this week, but I encourage you to hear both these messages. It kind of comes as a package deal. What I want to do now is address the two most common answers that Christians usually give to the question, why did Susie get miraculously healed in response to prayer and Johnny died? Why did... It looked like Susie and her family got a nice, wonderful egg when they asked for an egg, but Johnny and his family, it looks like, got a scorpion. The two most common answers. The most common answer out there is this. And I'm sure many of us were taught this. The reason why Susie was healed and the reason why Johnny died was because that was God's will. That was God's will. It's that simple. Um, We said, God, will you heal Susie? He says, yes. God, will you heal Johnny? He says no. And then we have uh, some sayings around that to try to bring some comfort to it. We say things like, you know, uh, the angels must have needed Johnny more than we did. Um, God knows what he's doing. God's still on his throne. God's got a higher purpose. God's timing is always the right timing. It must have been Johnny's time to go. There are no accidents. Providence writes straight with crooked lines. God's ways are not our ways. And on and on and on. And the people who say these things are very, very sincere and they're meant to give assurance. And sometimes, to some people, they do give assurance. And sometimes, to other people, not so much. Now, keep your thinking caps on, follow me on this. I want to affirm that there is a higher purpose to Johnny's dying. That's not just a gratuitous evil, there's a higher purpose. God always has a wise plan being prepared from the foundation of the world to bring good out of events. But this doesn't mean that God wanted Johnny to die. We often appeal to Romans 8.28 in situations like this. Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God is working together with us for the good. But Romans 20.28 20, does not say that everything that happens is God's working for the good. In Johnny's death, God is at work to bring good out of it. But that doesn't mean that Johnny's death was itself the result of God working a good thing. Because Johnny's death is not a good thing. God works in Johnny's tragic death in response to uh, Johnny's tragic death. But it doesn't mean in any sense that God wanted Johnny to die. Now what I think sometimes happens is that God is so brilliant at weaving tragic and evil events into his plan That Some people conclude that the events themselves must have been part of his plan all along. But that way of thinking, I submit to you, is limiting God. It's bringing God down to our level. We would need to be planning the events all along uh, in order to respond to them as effectively as God does. But God is smarter than that. God is so smart, he can take things that aren't part of his plans, things that he genuinely wishes never happened, but nevertheless he can brilliantly weave them into his plan. He's so smart, he can anticipate the possibility of Johnny's death from the foundation of the world and have a wise plan in place to bring good out of it. But he's so smart, he can do that even though Johnny's death wasn't itself part of his plan from the foundation of the world. It seems like a subtle distinction, but it's an all-important distinction. When people answer the question about unanswered prayer by saying God willed it, they're really assuming that the only variable that decides what comes to pass in the world, is God's will. Yes, God, will you heal Susie? He says, yes. It pleases me to say yes. Well, will you heal Johnny? God says, no. It pleases me to have him die. He could have just as easily said yes in this view, but instead he said no, it's that simple. Now let's think this through. Do you really want to say, I mean, do you really want to say That every unanswered prayer is a matter of God going, no. Think of some of the things that people pray for and then aren't answered. Do you want to say that God's just up there saying, no, I'd rather have the tragic event happen? Lord, will you protect my child? No, I want them to be kidnapped. Lord, will you protect my teenager? No, I want them to be raped. Lord, will you you keep my marriage together? No, I want your husband to cheat on you. Or even, Lord, will you you save my, my, my son? No, I want him to go to hell. Because if every unanswered prayer is simply a matter of God saying yes or no, well then you'd have to say that God wanted the person to go to hell and therefore didn't answer your prayer to save them. Now there are some people who teach that, but for most of us that's a little bit hard to swallow. God just going, no, 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 I don't want to. And this is a classic case of God giving a scorpion when you're asking for egg and Jesus says he doesn't do that. That picture of God, I submit to you, Where God's just up there going, no, I'd rather have the rape. No, I'd rather have the Holocaust. No, I'd rather have the person go to hell. That's not the picture of God that we're given in the person of Jesus Christ. That's not the beautiful God revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? You don't need to look anywhere else but Jesus to see what the Father is like. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he never said no. He he spent his whole ministry dealing with the blind and the lame and people with infirmities and, and other situations. And, and never once, never once does he suggest that they are that way because it was God's will for them to be that way. What he rather does is he says they are that way because we live in a demonically oppressed world, and then he reveals what God's will is by coming against those things. That's the will of God. If Jesus reveals anything about God, it's that God is against things like Johnny dying and people being kidnapped and raped. If, if, if this teaching we're studying here this morning means anything, it's that God, when we ask for eggs, he doesn't give scorpions. You see, it's not just a matter of God saying yes and no. God is all-powerful, absolutely. But he's chosen to create a world that's populated with human and angelic free agents. Agents who have got genuine say-so that affects what comes to pass. Humans and angels can affect things by what they do with their own free will. And the minute, the minute you understand that, the universe becomes a whole lot more complex. Because free agents who have say-so can either agree with God's will or they can disagree with God's will. They can interfere with God's yes towards blessing and interfere with God's no towards evil. They have genuine power to do that. For example, I'll give you just a few of the thousands of examples of this in the Bible. Luke chapter 7, verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. They re- God had a purpose. God had a plan for these folks, but they rejected that purpose. Free agents can interfere with God's plan for their life. In Isaiah 30, it says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine. We, because we are personal agents, we can create our own plans. And, and God's will is that our plans agree with his will, but we have the potential to come up with plans that are not God's plans, that go against God's plans, that interfere with God's plans. And that has consequences for our own life and many times for the life of other people. Now see, this, this understanding applies to prayer. When you understand that, that people really are free agents, it applies to prayer. For example, you can pray for protection, for someone's protection, and you need to believe that that prayer is powerful and effective; it influences things in a kingdom direction. But it nevertheless is the case that that person, uh, I, someone, can decide to get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car. They've got the free will to do that. Your prayer doesn't collapse that free will, and they just might run into your car. You can pray for someone's salvation, and that's powerful and effective, and it, influence the in, it influences the person in a kingdom direction. But they still have free will. Your prayer doesn't turn them into a robot and they can interfere with God's plan to respond to your prayer in a positive direction. You can pray for your marriage to work and you should pray for your marriage to work and trust that it's powerful and effective and it influences the marriage in the kingdom direction. Still, your spouse has free will and can decide to go out and cheat on you or go out and, and walk away from you. You see, it's not just a matter of God saying yes or God saying no. People can interfere with God's yes to blessing and interfere with God's no towards evil. And it's not just humans who have this say-so and this power. There's a whole angelic realm that also, are personal agents who have got say-so. A classic illustration of this, keep your thinking caps on, is Daniel chapter 10. Daniel prays for God. Lord, will you give me an egg? That's not literally what he prayed, but I'm illustrating here. Then 21 days later, an angel shows up and says, Daniel, do not be afraid. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me, resisted, interfered with me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, he's Michael the archangel, which tells you they're they're talking about spiritual principalities and powers here. Michael came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And so the angel gets freed up from that battle, comes and delivers the message to Daniel. And then at the end of this chapter, he says, Daniel, I'd love to stay and chat, but I got to go back because I just found out in the walkie-talkie that the prince of Greece joined the battle, and so I'm needed back there. Weird, weird stuff. But here's the point. Daniel prayed, God answered the prayer, But the prince of Persia had a different plan and it interfered with God's plan. And that's why it took 21 days for the prayer to get there. So we've got to realize, folks, that when we pray, we are praying in a war zone. This world is populated with, with free agents, human and angelic, and it's torn apart by war. There's a cosmic war that is going on. And our job is to partner with God to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. But we've got to realize that there are forces that resist that. Forces that resist. Prayer isn't magic. And God is not a genie. Prayer is warfare. We're laboring with God to resist forces of evil to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is a form of social and spiritual revolt. We're revolutionaries. And see, this answers a question I raised last week. Why do we have to pray with persistence? That's the main force of Jesus' teaching in this passage. Pray with persistence. Audacious persistence. Why do we have to pray with like that? See, if it was simply a matter of God going yes or no, there wouldn't be any point to asking more than once. Especially since Jesus tells us that He wants to He wants to give us the egg. Dad, can I have an egg? Yeah, here you go. You have to say God, Dad, gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme, 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 gimme. No, He'd give it the first time. But see, the reason we pray for with persistence is not because God is stingy, or not because God wants us to beg Him. It's because we're laboring against people and forces that have genuine say so. And that labor takes persistence. When you're praying for your marriage, for example, it's powerful and effective, but you're also up against a stubborn human heart, perhaps. And you've got to be pressing against that. And you're also possibly pressing against forces of evil in the spiritual realm that are strengthening his rebellious heart or her rebellious heart. So prayer takes persistence. You pray for someone's salvation. It's powerful and effective, but you're also up against a rebellious heart, an unbelieving heart. You're pressing against that. And there may be forces in the spiritual realm that are strengthening that rebellious heart. Prayer is labor. Prayer is warfare. It's not simply a matter of God saying yes or no. In a world that's created with impact and populated with free agents, all that can, to some degree, interfere with God's yes and no, it's much more complex than just yes or no. It means that God's will isn't the only variable that decides what comes to pass in creation. It means that the universe is a whole lot more complex than simply saying, God's saying yes or no. So the yes or no an- answer to the question of why is prayer sometimes answered and sometimes not, I find to be biblically and just rationally inadequate. Now let's turn to the second most common response to why Susie was healed and Johnny was not. There are some sincere, wonderful people in Christendom who rightly understand that Jesus is to be our model of God and therefore they don't want to say that it was God's will for Johnny to die. But then they think this way. If God wanted to heal Johnny and Johnny nevertheless died, it must be because Johnny or his parents, or other people who were praying for him, lacked faith. They lacked faith. In this view, God's will is either accomplished or hindered based solely on whether we have sufficient faith or whether we lack faith. If you have faith, this view says, God's will will be done in your life. Which means, according to this uh, teaching, that if you have enough faith, you're never going to be sick because that's not God's will. You're never going to have disease, you're never going to have a deformity, or your kids won't have deformity, you'll never uh, have accidents or tragedies. And this view holds you'll never be in poverty because it's not God's will for you to be poor. If you have enough faith. And if you think that through a little bit, it means this: If your little Johnny dies, it's your fault. If your child's born with a deformity or if your spouse dies of cancer or if you end up in financial ruin or if a loved one gets killed in a car accident, it's, it's ultimately your fault because if you would have had enough faith, since that clearly was not God's will, if you would have had enough faith, then those things would have been prevented. The first, the most common answer to the question of unanswered prayer, it blames God. The second response that we're looking at right now, it blames the victim. And I'm honestly not sure which one is worse. They both do a great deal of damage. I will say that I have personally witnessed dozens of lives that were virtually ruined by this teaching. That if you have enough faith, well then, uh, every aspect of God's will is going to be done in your life. If only you had enough faith, your child would still be alive. Uh, enter, enter into that thought. Put yourself in the position of a mother whose child was Johnny and died and now you're convinced that it was your fault because you obviously didn't have enough faith. Or put yourself in a position of someone who's a paraplegic in a wheelchair and they believe that if they had enough faith, they could get up out of that wheelchair. So it's ultimately their fault that they're in the wheelchair. Um, that, that can do a massive number on your head. It can drive people into despair. It can even, and I've seen this, drive people to suicide. Ah. Uh, it can, it's, it's, a dangerous, it's a dangerous teaching. And the people who teach it are sincere and wonderful folks. I just think it's really wrong-headed. Now, we've got to have integrity about this. I can't deny that there are biblical verses that can be cited in support of that view. We've got to deal with that. Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. That looks like it might support that position. Jesus said, if you have faith, even as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed, and the mountain will be removed. So what do I do with those texts? We've got to wrestle with this. Can't pretend like they're not there. It's no fair to ignore texts just because they don't agree with your theology. So let's deal with them. I'll I'll say three things about this, and I want you to pay close attention because this is very, very important stuff. First, it is true that the Bible strongly emphasizes the importance of faith. Absolutely. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that faith is, is the only variable that affects what comes to pass. Nowhere does it say that faith is the only variable that affects whether God's will is done in your life or not. That's going beyond what Scripture teaches. And anytime we go beyond what Scripture teaches, we're asking for trouble. We'll see next week that there's a lot of variables that affect what comes to pass. Faith is a very important one, and God's will is a very important one, but they're not the only ones. Secondly, jesus we need to understand that Jesus spoke in typical Middle East, first century hyperbole. Uh, This was a uh, a, a Middle East linguistic trait. In fact, it still is. They speak in hyperbole for the purpose of emphasis. Hyperbole is when you state things in an exaggerated form, without nuance, in absolute categories, without any qualifications. And the reason they do that is for emphasis. In fact, that's still kind of a trait of of the Middle East. If you go over to to, Middle Eastern countries and and let's say you go to a market and you start bargaining with somebody as you're always doing these these open markets, your first offer will probably be met by some response like, this is the most insulting offer ever made in the history of the universe. You spit upon my mother's grave with an offer like that. (laughs) And the person doesn't mean it literally, but what they're saying in very emphatic terms is, I don't accept your offer. You see, it's, 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 it's hyperbole is used as a way of putting an exclamation point at the end of sentences in Middle Eastern cultures. And you find this throughout the Bible, and this is so important. This is worth the price of admission right here, folks. Pay attention. Because the Bible is full of hyperbole, but if you're not aware of this sort of linguistic trait, you take things literally that were never meant to be taken literally, and it screws you up. For example, here's this one, one little example. Psalms and Proverbs are full of hyperbole. Here's one of them. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Start children off on the way they should go, train them right, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. So I've met a number of parents, well-intentioned godly parents, who are just reading the Bible, and they take this to be an absolute promise of God. I know that if I raise my children right, that they will never turn from the path of righteousness. Now, sometimes they do. And then a parent has to either blame themselves or blame God. Either you didn't raise the kid right or God didn't come through on his promise. Both of them have disastrous results. Let's think about this. If ch- does it mean that if children turn from the right path, you didn't raise them right? Does it mean that the parents of, 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 of every kid who turned out to be a criminal or even the parents of kids who just walked away from the Lord, that they should blame themselves? It's their fault. Is it the case that kids who are really raised right now for the rest of their life, have absolutely no free will. They can't make a morally responsible decision like the right path or the wrong path. Why? Because the parents raised them right. That is just uh, uh, an, uh, an absurd idea. They have free will and we all know that on some level. See, the author in Proverbs 22 is giving us a principle here, not a magical formula. He's saying, Raising kids right at an early age is very, very important. And the way you say that in, Middle East, uh, in the ancient, Middle East, ancient Near East culture is by stating, stating it in unqualified, absolute, exaggerated terms. It's a way of saying this is really, really important. But he's not saying that because you raise your kids right, it's utterly impossible for them to ever turn from the path of righteousness. And that's what Jesus is doing in these teachings. He's giving us a principle not a magical formula. He's saying faith is very, very, very important. So he states it in extreme terms, like moving mountains, and he states it in absolute, absolute terms, uh, according to your faith bid unto you. But he's not thereby saying that there's no other variables that affect what come to pass. When we treat faith like a, magic, like a magical formula, which is what we're doing when we think that faith collapses all the other variables that affect what come to pass. You're treating faith like magic. And when we do that, folks, we invariably end up blaming the victim and we sometimes get ourselves in some impossible, ludicrous positions. For example, think about this. Uh, let's imagine two people. We'll call them Bill and Joanne. And they're both Christians and they both believe that faith Uh, They have kind of a magical view of faith. And they're both applying for a position, the same position. Uh, Let's say they're they're applying to be regional manager for Verizon phones. And so they are praying about getting this job and they're believing God to get this job and they're convinced that according to the faith be done to him, what's God going to do now? Two people, one position. Someone's going to have their faith blown apart. And do you really want to believe that since these two people have faith that the boss no longer has any free will to decide who should get the job, are we saying that because these two people have faith, that therefore, um, therefore their qualifications are irrelevant and their job description and their life experience is utterly unimportant? Come on, on some level, on some level, we all know that as important as faith is, there are other factors that determine what comes to pass. Faith isn't the all-determining variable. The fact is faith is important, but it's not magic because people and angels still have free will and can affect what comes to pass. Let's go back to Daniel. Daniel prayed. Daniel had faith, but it still took 21 days for the prayer to be answered. Why? It wasn't because God willed it to take 21 days, and it wasn't because Daniel didn't have faith for 21 days. Uh, It was because a spiritual war broke out that intercepted or interfered with the answer to prayer. The delay had nothing to do with God's will, and the delay had nothing to do with Daniel's faith. It had to do with this spiritual warfare that broke out over Persia. Folks, we've got to respect the complexity of a world populated by angelic and human free agents. When prayer is unanswered, it's not necessarily because God said no, and it's not necessarily because you lack faith. Those are two important variables, but as we'll see next week, there's many, many other variables as well. And I want to make one final, very important point, and that is this. We ordinarily can't know most of the variables that affect what comes to pass. We, 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 we know next to nothing about anything. Think about this. Daniel, it took 21 days for this prayer to be answered. Why? If the angel hadn't told him, if the angel hadn't given him a little, little peek a behind the screen of physical reality, Daniel wouldn't have had a clue why it took 21 days. And no doubt, he would have had friends on one side saying, well, it must not have been God's will. Uh, God's timing is always the right timing. He just didn't will to answer it for 21 days. And then he would have had friends on the other side saying, no, Daniel, God will to answer it right away. Uh, but you lacked faith, obviously, for 21 days. And they both would have been wrong. The answer had to do with the spiritual war that broke out over Persia. But they would not have any, had a clue about that had the angel not revealed it to him. In fact, think about this. If Michael hadn't gotten freed up to come and and, and do warfare and free up this angel, for all we know, it could have taken 21 years for that prayer to be answered. And they still wouldn't have known why. In a world that is torn apart by war and populated by free agents, reality becomes so complex and most of it is unknowable. and, And therefore, we normally don't have a clue why things happen the way they do. And that's why, ordinarily, we can't know why Johnny died Why Susie was healed. We just can't know that. In fact, we, we, folks, we don't know much of anything about anything. Honestly, take any... <laughs> <laughs> we don't! We're stupid people! No, we're limited human beings. Think about this. Take any fact, any fact in the universe. Why is this, why is this uh, water sitting up here? Why am I wearing brown instead of pink? Why are you sitting in that chair but not the chair next to you? Why was there a seven-second interval between two cars passing subway on Wiper Avenue right now? Why'd the bird land on that particular leaf right now? Why'd the leaf twitch in the wind? Why'd that snowflake fall? Take any of those facts. And what you have is there is a line of influences that go back to the beginning of time That brought about that state of affairs. And if any of those influences had been a little bit different, according to chaos theory, you know, the whole butterfly effect kind of thing, if any of those influences had been different, that event might be different. For all I know, if Goethe hadn't sneezed at 3 in the morning in Paris, this water wouldn't be up here right now. I don't know. (laughs) The world is unfet. There is an infinite sea of mystery around everything. You, you do a PhD on why there's a seven-second interval between two cars on Wiper Avenue. So you go and interview the guy in the first car and say, why were you driving? Where were you driving as fast as you were driving? And then you interview the person in the second car. Why were you driving when you were driving as fast as you were driving? And you call that an answer. But that's not at the beginning of an answer because th- the decision to be driving when they were as fast as they were was influenced by every other decision they made that day which was influenced by the decisions made the day before and the day before the day before and going all the way back to their birth. And all of those decisions were influenced by the decisions of other people and so on for all of their life. And you can prove in three logical moves that to figure out why there's a seven-second interval between two cars on White Bear Avenue or why this water is up here or why you're sitting in that chair instead of the chair next to you, to know any of that, you'd have to know the entire history of the universe exhaustively including the whole spiritual realm because they also affect what comes to pass. There is an infinite sea of mystery around every contingent fact in the universe. A contingency is anything that could be otherwise. So the question of why did Susie get an egg and Johnny get a scorpion is unanswerable for the same reason that every question is unanswerable. It's it's the same sort of mystery, but it does mean this. We've got to get very, very comfortable with saying I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Now the, it's the most important three words. Um, uh, it, we get embarrassed because, oh, uh, it didn't happen. But that's the only reason we get embarrassed because we've been strapped with a magical formula that either says it's God's fault or it's their fault. Let's, let's lose that right now and just say, wow, the world is really weird. And, and, and you just keep pressing forward in, in prayer. We live in a, in, a, in, a, in a cosmos that is unfathomably uh, complex, that has it's got impenetrable mystery at every turn, and it's torn apart by war. And the whole book of Job, by the way, is, is on this. And in a world like that, we shouldn't expect to know very, very much. But in this sea of ambiguity, we've got to know two things. Two things. Number one, We've got to know that God looks like Jesus Christ. If you see me, you see the Father. He's the word of God. He's the image of God. He's the form of God. He's the perfect expression of God. We're to take all of our cues of what God is like from the person of Jesus Christ. And if we do that in the sea of ambiguity, then we'll see that God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. There's no evil in him. There's nothing sinister in him. There's nothing malicious in him. We've got to know that God's on the side of good. He's not on the side of evil. We've got to take great care not to uh, loop all the painful tragedies of this war zone into God's character and therefore compromise the beauty of our picture of God. Everything hangs on that. Know that God is good. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And in this complex war zone, we've got to know a second thing. And that is that talking to God is powerful and effective and accomplishes much the Bible says so. Now, we often can't and maybe even usually can't see the correlation between what we pray and what comes to pass because there's so many other variables. But we've got to have the confidence that there is no such thing as a wasted prayer. In the midst of this ambiguity, we're partnering with God to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. In this ambiguous, complex war zone, we're pushing against forces of evil that resist God's will, including the say-so of other human beings and including the say-so of rebellious angelic beings. Prayer is not magic. It doesn't poof, collapse all the other variables. But it is powerful and effective, and we've got to walk with that trust and walk with that confidence. It's so hard for us Western people especially because we're so practical. We're so cause and effect oriented. We like to be able to see the correlation between what we do and, and, and what gets done. And because of that, it's easy for us to lose confidence in the power of prayer. But folks, this is what faith is all about. This is what faith is all about. And God calls on us to whether we can see it or not, trust him, that talking to him changes the world. So we must keep talking to him continually, day in and day out. I want to close by just asking the Holy Spirit to apply this to our life in some particular ways. You can close your eyes if you want, or you can pray with your eyes open. Doesn't matter. But I want to ask the Holy Spirit right now just a couple of questions to apply this. Some people here and maybe some people listening through iPod, uh, some people have maybe taken a hit in the war zone. And maybe it was a nightmarishly tragic hit, the kind like you lost little Johnny. And maybe some here and some listening, you thought that was God giving you a scorpion instead of an egg. And maybe that belief... Has sapped. I'm almost sure it to some degree has sapped some of your passion for God, some of your enthusiasm for life, some of your trust in God. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to apply this teaching to you right now. Holy Spirit, help people who have been strapped with that belief to reframe you. To see that you are the God revealed in Jesus Christ. That is your heart of hearts. That when we ask for eggs, you're not the one giving scorpions. The devil gives scorpions. The war zone gives scorpions. But you're not a scorpion giving God. You're an egg giving God. And and God, help them to reframe that and rekindle a passion and a love for you. Free them. Free them from the mistaken view that they've had. Do it, Holy Spirit. There's a whole other class of people here or who are listening who have taken hits in the war zone, maybe nightmarishly tragic hits like losing Johnny. But you didn't blame God, but you blamed yourself. You had the second view that we talked about this morning. Or maybe you didn't blame yourself, but others blamed you. And you were convinced that if you would have had enough faith, your child would still be alive or your spouse would still be with you or you wouldn't have the cancer that you've got right now or whatever So you walk around with a sort of doubt, maybe even a self-indictment. Holy Spirit, will you apply this teaching to those folks' lives right here and right now and set them free? Living in condemnation is no way to live. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Free them, Holy Spirit. Liberate them. Invariably, that belief could have been sucking some of their passion for life and for God out, maybe their, their love for God out, Lord, free them and speak to them in their heart. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. Let it go. And Holy Spirit, now begin to reassure them that you are a brilliant God at bringing redemptive value even out of the most tragic events. You can bring a higher purpose to events. Events don't always happen for a higher purpose, but you bring a higher purpose to them, and reassure their hearts that you're going to do that. And finally, there, there's probably a number of people in this auditorium or who are listening right now who maybe you—it's not—it's not that you took hits in the war zone, but but you've just grown weary in talking to God because you just don't see any correlation between your talking to God and what comes to pass. And I so get that one. It's one of my main struggles as well. You just get tired when you can't see any outcomes. But I want to ask the Holy Spirit to apply this teaching to your life and start to rekindle our confidence in prayer. Start to reorientate us so that we trust God's word more than we trust what we can see with our eyes. And give us the confidence, Lord, that if you said it, we will believe it. And that really does settle it. And so God, rekindle our confidence in prayer, our passion for prayer, to become a people who talk to you continually and invite the kingdom into every event in our life. As I end this prayer, I wanna ask the prayer team to come forward. And uh, if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these fine folks. Or if you just wanna come and kneel at the altar, I encourage you to do that. Or if you're not a person who's surrendered to Jesus Christ and you're feeling a pull in that direction this morning, I encourage you to come forward and talk to these fine folks. They'd love to explain to you what that's about. But Lord, now as we leave this place, God, heal us, restore us, rekindle our passion Remind us to talk to you day in and day out. God, help us to be a people who are very aware of the complexity of the world and how we can't fit it in. Help us to resist the temptation of trying to formalize life, bring a formula to everything. God, free us to be a people who are very comfortable saying, I don't know. But to be a people who in the midst of the I don't know have an incredible trust in you and an incredible trust in the power of talking with you. And God, as we do that, build your kingdom in us and build your kingdom through us, showing your love and your light to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. God bless you guys. Go talk to God. Build the kingdom.